Just several weeks ago, I received a letter from the AARP providing me with a limited uh, time offer of membership. The letter described all of the advantages offered to members, everything from discounts on travel and groceries and insurance to health products to free publications. And they even included my pre-printed membership card. Woohoo! I was astounded to learn all of the life-changing benefits that the AARP offered me. Well, we're heading into our final week of studying the short New Testament letter of 1 John in this series of sermons that we've titled Finding Real Life in God's Great Story. And today, in chapter 5, we're going to discover the benefits of being a child of God, being a member of his family. Now, this letter has proven both encouraging and challenging, hasn't it? For those of you who have been studying along with us, reading it, John writes as a contemplative activist. He writes, he repeats, he repeats again, he broods, he reflects, and then he drives home a point with gentle forcefulness. In fact, for the last four chapters, we see that he's been repeating the same three themes over and over again. First, that love is the most important thing, that we've got to uh, love others because God is love and he's loved us. We've seen, secondly, that right belief and right behavior are both necessary as Christ followers. Neither is sufficient alone. And then thirdly, we've learned that in the kingdom, truth seldom stands alone. We almost always live in the radical middle of tension between two universal, equal truths. So let's press ahead now into chapter 5. We'll see how John sums it all up. Let's pray together. Lord, we're graciously thankful for this brand new day. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Your faithfulness is new every day. Thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath. Thank you for soundness of mind. Thank you for the privilege of setting everything else aside that competes for our attention in our crazy busy lives, that we can give ourselves wholeheartedly for this hour to that which is fundamental, loving and worshiping, serving and obeying, finding life in you. We welcome you here, not just in this room, but next door in Vineyard Kids, where where they're learning these truths and experiencing Jesus and creating fond, positive memories of, of Christ in his church. Lord, meet with us here. Put power on your word to our lives where we need it, where you know we need it. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, why don't you open it to 1 John chapter 5. The Apostle John is wrapping up his letter to Christians who were fighting each other, who were beginning to love the world again, and those who were falling victim to the teaching of Gnosticism and sliding into its accompanying licentious lifestyle. Their reasoning was this, hey, the spirit is pure, so it really doesn't matter what you do with the evil flesh. And they ended up living a a lifestyle that was contrary to God. And we see that John has been addressing his three primary arguments in a repetitive and interwoven fashion. It's not the kind of letter that moves from A to to B, to C in strict order. Rather, it's a little of A, then a little of A and C, and then C, and then B, and then B and C, all mixed together. And so if it feels like that John is talking in circles, it's because he is. 
it feels like uh, he's saying the same thing over and over again. That's because he is. I think it reflects John's mature understanding. He's writing now in the shadow of his life, uh, at, at the close of, of his ministry and career. He's had the, the benefit of 60 years of reflection on ministry in the church. And I think he understands that growth as a disciple of Christ is seldom linear, but rather it's cyclical and seasonal. That is, we progress and mature in fits and starts, and they often are punctuated with setbacks and repeat uh, cycles. You, you feel like you're taking the same test over and over again? That's more realistic of, of the way the Christian life is lived. And now, in chapter 5, he becomes somewhat more persuasive by appealing to the benefits of believing and behaving as a child of God. Now, John isn't communicating with slick marketing materials like I receive from the AARP and maybe you receive in the mail every week from whatever credit card company is soliciting your business. Rather, he ends on a high note of encouragement He's reminding us as his reader, like, why we actually want to believe and behave. What are the benefits of actually being a child of God? Why we want to hang in there. So let's take a, a moment and read the entire chapter together. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children, too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit who is truth confirms it with his testimony. And so we have three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his Son. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe in this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God's testified about his Son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And we're confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us, when we make our requests, we also know that he'll give us what we ask for. If you see a Christian brother or sister sinning in a way that doesn't lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we're children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that when the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding so that we can know the true God and that we can know that we... Uh, let me read that verse again. 
We know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the only true God. He is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Now, when I read uh, this chapter, I see that John points to two overarching benefits of being a child of God, being a member of God's family. First, that we can be certain that we have eternal life. Second, that we can receive answers to prayer. Let's look at the first benefit, that we can be certain we have eternal life. John makes it very clear why he's writing. Verse 11, this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. John says, I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So let's unpack this just a little bit. With uh, Let's begin with the term eternal life. Now, the ancient Jews believed that the world history was divided into two periods or ages. There was the present age or the present evil age, which was full of misery and pain and suffering and injustice and oppression. And you'll see that phrase used throughout the New Testament. This age, the present evil age. But then there was the age to come. It's the time when God would put everything to right again. He would bring justice and peace and prosperity. And in particular, he would rescue his people, Israel, uh, from everything that they had suffered. And you'll see this phrase used throughout the New Testament as well, the age to come. Now, unfortunately, the word that is used to describe the age to come has most often been translated in most versions of the Bible as eternal, like it was here in verse 11 and 13. He has given us eternal life, verse 13, so that you may know you have eternal life. But the word eternal comes from a Greek word that would probably more literally translate belonging to the age, as in the age to come. Now, the word life comes from the Greek word zoe. You've probably heard that before if you've been in the church. And it it's not just life as the, the animal force in us. It's God's quality of life, life in its fullness, the full extent of God's kind of life, life in abundance. And so to summarize, uh, N.T. Wright, who is one of the uh, world's foremost Bible scholars alive today, says in his commentary on the book of First John, uh, that the most accurate translation for the words eternal life would more literally be the life of the age to come. Now, very often when we hear the phrase eternal life, Christians think of a spiritual life in heaven after we die. But that is not at all what Jesus or Paul or John uh, or Peter had in mind when they wrote the words. They were thinking of the quality of life in a world of space, time, and matter that we'll receive when God sets everything to right again. 
in the age to come. Uh, It's not a wispy, cosmic, spiritual, non-material life. It's a real life in a real body, in a real world of space and time and matter. It's the quality of life that we will enjoy in the eternal state when Jesus restores everything. And here's the catch. In Jesus and his resurrection, that quality of life has broken back into the present evil age. In Jesus and the resurrection, it's now here. It's the kind of life that Jesus had in mind when he said in John, John's Gospel, the 10th chapter, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. Life in abundance. Other translations read, life in its fullness. I like to call it real life. It's what Jesus had in mind when he says in Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter, the spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And so the life of the age to come is this captives being released life. It's the oppressed being set free life. It's the blind being healed life. It's the experiencing God's favor life. That's what has broken back into this present evil age. The life of the future kingdom is already here, but it's not yet all the way here like it will be someday. So we live in the radical tension of the already and the not yet. You know, we've been saying for weeks now, It's like the kingdom of God is already here, one end of the tension. In the resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom has come. But because we still live in the present evil age, it's not yet all the way here. And so we live like we feel like we're being stretched, don't we? In the radical middle of the kingdom's already here, the kingdom's not yet all the way here, like it will be someday. Now, in this sense, the two kingdoms, the two ages overlap the present evil age, the age to come. And John is saying, we've received the life of the age to come, eternal life, now in this present evil age. That's why at times, Christians, friends, you feel totally confused. When we, we have been declared to be set free and victorious and born again with the power of God and the Spirit living in us, and yet we are weak and vulnerable and susceptible to sin and failure at the same time. Because we live in this overlapping of ages. We live in the radical middle of tension. We, we, we experience the life of the age to come, but we live here in the present evil age, and we just get all confused. And John is saying, you just have to remember, you have the life of the age to come. So now let's just bring this down a little bit more concretely where we live. Three points. First, eternal life. And when I say that, always think the life of the age to come. Eternal life, the life of the age to come, is not a benefit that any of us could ever earn. It's a free gift from God. Verse 11, did you catch it? He has given. There's nothing a man or a woman or a child could ever do to earn or merit, or to keep and preserve the life of the age to come. You can't. You can't. God's gift to you is forgiveness and new life in Jesus. It's a free gift that's rooted in God's inexhaustible and never-ending love for all people in all cultures everywhere. John has reminded us, hasn't it? Hasn't he? That, that it's not that we love God, but that he loved us. He took the initiation. 
And in this sense, friends, I regret to tell you, it's not our talent, our attractiveness, our great uh, abilities, or even our potential that have impressed God. Rather, uh, the Apostle tells us, in the, in the Apostle Paul tells us, it's that God chose the foolish, the weak, the powerless, the despised, and the things that count as nothing to be the objects of his love and mercy. Eternal life is a free gift from God. And in this sense, the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom is not about what we do. It's about what God has already done. Second thing about eternal life, or more accurately, the life of the age to come, is that it's found in Jesus. Verse 11, this life is in his son. Verse 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. On another occasion, John recorded in his gospel, the 14th chapter, Jesus said, he quotes the Lord, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So real life is not found in Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Shinto, or ancestral worship, or spiritism, or black magic, or agnosticism, or atheism, or any other ism. Real life is found in Jesus. Now, many people, people with whom you work, live, learn, and play, they find this truth to be narrow and restrictive. Perhaps they would call it bigoted or offensive. Here's what I would say in response. Christianity is Christ. And either Jesus is narrow and he's wrong, or Jesus is narrow and he's right. Right now, there are two billion people on the face of the earth that have decided that Jesus is narrow and he is right. Now, at the same time, We know that there's no precise template for what it looks like to believe in Jesus and how this life actually works out. My journey of believing in Jesus, as John frames it, is different than your journey of believing in Jesus. Now, while while the journey is different, there certainly are some similar um, commonalities to our experience. At some place on the journey, as we've discovered in 1 John, we believe, we surrender our life uh, to Jesus, and when we choose to fully follow him, we experience what he calls the new birth, the birth from above by the Holy Spirit. And in this spiritual rebirth, we've learned that the Holy Spirit forgives our sins, the Holy Spirit creates us uh, to be new people, our old sinful self died, and a new... uh, righteous, filled with the Holy Spirit self, comes to life. John says in verse 1 of this chapter that at that point we become a child of God. And then real life or eternal life, the life of the kingdom to come, the life that we really want, the, the life of peace, joy, and contentment, freedom from oppression and injustice, that life is available now to us as children of God, because of Jesus. 
And then John goes into this really convoluted explanation about how God has actually testified to that through his son at his water baptism and his death on the cross. And he adds the confirmation of the Holy Spirit when actually God, God's Spirit spoke audibly. And John's appeal in those verses with that confusing thing about the testimony and the word and the blood, what he's saying is that God himself has testified to this powerful truth at Jesus' baptism and his death. So, the second point that I'm making is that eternal life or the life of the age to come is actually found in Jesus. The third thing, eternal life, or more accurately, the life of the age to come, is our present personal possession. It's not something that we will inherit someday when we die and go to heaven or wherever believers go when they die. There's some ambiguity in the Bible. You know that about where we go. It's sketchy. We see in a glass darkly. But the point is, the life of the age to come isn't something you're going to get after you die. It's something you have right now. It's your present personal possession. Right now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've received the life of the age to come. Now, in the evangelical church, it's often common to dismiss any claim to your assurance of salvation with the thought that that's presumptuous. Um, you can never really know you're saved. Or, or how do you know you'll spend eternity with Jesus in heaven? And, and perhaps some of you have struggled with this very thing. You know, you, you can't say with certainty that you've been born from above or that your sin has been forgiven or that you are a child of God. And, and like John has been saying, well, once you become a Christian, you don't continue to sin. And maybe there's been a stronghold of sin in your life or you're just weakness and, and you're, you're vulnerable to temptation. And when that happens, then you kind of begin to think, well, maybe I'm really not a Christian after all because I still struggle with sin. I was raised in a church tradition that actually advocated working out your salvation in fear and trembling. And what they meant was, in humility, you had to hope and pray every night as you laid to rest that you were somehow good enough to merit God's favor. Well, I would just say that certainty and humility do not exclude one another. You can be certain of your salvation and be humble about it at the same time. John tells us that we can be certain we are children of God. You can know for certain that you've experienced the life of the age to come. We no longer need to struggle with doubts about our forgiveness, our salvation, whether we're really a child of God. And friends, even in your darkest Moments of deepest doubt and confusion and despair and anger and hurt and sin, wondering if you're a Christian or God could ever possibly love you because of what you thought or said or did. John says, you can know that you have eternal life. Whew. That's good news. If you've struggled with this certainty, we, we will pray for you at the close of this service. God wants you to live free from the nagging doubt and anxiety that surround whether or not you are his child. And so John's first encouragement, his reminder of why we want to hang in there, believe and behave, 
is because we can be certain we've experienced the life of the age to come. The second benefit he offers is that we can actually receive answers to prayer. Verse 14, we're confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And we know that uh, he hears us when we make our request. We also know he'll give us what we ask for. If you see a Christian brother or sister sinning in a way that doesn't lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for them who commit that. So now John appeals in these three verses uh, to, to us as his readers with the benefit of answered prayer, first for ourselves, and then secondly, on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are struggling. So first for ourselves. I love how uh, N.T. Wright writes about this when he says, those who believe in Jesus, who abide in God, can pray with a new, bold confidence. They stand at the place where heaven and earth meet and are encouraged to draw down from the blessings of heaven into the life of the earth and to know that as they make their request that they've already been granted, even though, as Scripture itself and Christian experience both teach, they may be granted in ways one had not expected. I love his language, that Christians now stand where heaven and earth meet. You see, heaven is not like a faraway distant someplace. You know that. When astronauts go into outer space and when they look at the Hubble Space uh, 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 Telescope at the edges of the universe, they don't see heaven. It's not like up there somewhere. Heaven is just another dimension right here among us. The veil between us and the world of the spirits and the angels where Jesus and God are is very thin. And at any moment, it can break through. It's not up there somewhere. You can't find it. You can't see it. It's invisible. It's right here. And what I love about what John is telling us is that right now we stand where heaven and earth meet. You see, in the Old Testament days, it was first the tabernacle and then the temple. That's where heaven and earth met. Jesus was on the mercy seat. And you could go to a physical place at a prescribed time of the year and experience God's presence. But John is saying, now we are that place where heaven and earth meet, where Jesus dwells. And one of the benefits of being a child of God is to be able to reach into the age to come and bring back answers to prayer in the present evil age. A more familiar rendering of verse 14 is this. We have confidence that we have, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, He hears us. So we can be confident that God our Father hears us when we pray for things that are in accordance to or uh, in agreement with His will. Now, this is not saying that we should tack on to every prayer the religious-sounding phrase, well, if it be thy will, as perhaps many of us have been taught. We've mistakenly generalized Jesus' prayer of consecration in the Garden of Gethsemane as the template for all prayer. In the Garden, in duress of his life, Jesus prayed, Matthew 26, 39, O my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And well-meaning and well-intended teachers have taught us that that's the template for all prayer. These people would advocate that the truly pious Christian 
would always amend her or his prayers by adding this phrase in a dis, a, a supposed display of humility that the truly humble Christian would always add, if it be thy will. I don't think that's what John is saying here at all. He's advocating a confident and proactive praying according to the will of God. This promise from John indicates that now is God's child filled with his spirit because heaven and earth are meeting in us. The powers of the age to come live in us because we're living in the future age. When we proactively search out the will of God, we can pray that and be confident that God hears and answers that prayer. Now, in in many ways, we know God's general will because it's revealed in the pages of the Scripture. The Bible reveals, for instance, that it's God's will for people to be saved and forgiven and, and to follow Jesus for the gospel of the kingdom to be proclaimed and demonstrated for churches to be planted. The Bible reveals God's will is to grow in character and in conduct, to become more Christ-like. The Bible reveals it's God's will to bear the fruit of the Spirit and, and be loving and kind and forgiving and to be patient and have, have joy and, and peace in our life circumstances. The Bible reveals it's God's will to be healed and to be restored and to, to be made whole. The Bible reveals that it's God's will for us to prosper and, and have our needs met and to make wise decisions. So the situations where we know God's generally revealed will, John is saying, one of the benefits of being a Christ follower is that we can pray with confidence that God will move, he'll intervene, and he will act in the ways that are aligned with this revelation. So, for instance, you could pray for a loved one, a family member, or a friend to be saved, to come to the knowledge of uh, of Christ, to be healed, to be delivered, to be made whole, and for God's kingdom to break into their lives. That is the will of God. And you can pray that prayer with confidence. You could, you could pray with confidence for sufficient finances to meet your needs or for a new job or for favor on your current job. You could pray for wisdom in decision making or in your relationships. You could pray those prayers with a confident expectation that God wants to answer them. We pray with expectation, and then we trust God to dispense his love, his wisdom, and his power in just the right amounts at just the right time. Our job is to pray and trust. His job is to move. But friends, trusting in his sovereignty to work out the details is not to pray with presumption or, or to be demanding. It's to pray aligned with his will. We're supposed to pray that way as his children. It's to pray obediently. Now, there are many situations, aren't there, where even with a a general understanding of God's will, we just don't know the details of what his desires are in a particular situation uh, or or what he's doing at the moment. Jesus said, "I, I can only do what I see the Father doing and and." To be honest, there are many occasions where we really don't know what the Father is doing. So maybe it's we're, we're, we're buying a, a a new house, or or we're, we're praying about a specific new job, or a decision about 
where to go to school or what college to attend or what major to have or is it time for our family to have children or should I break up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? Uh, should I make a decision on behalf of my aging parents to go ahead with a certain procedure or not? There's, there's times we just don't know like what the will of God is. And so in these situations, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth, even as it's done in heaven. We can pray with confidence that God would bring his kingdom, the life of the age to come, to bear in that situation, and then we trust him. That's a proactive trust, though. It's not a like, well, kind of, I don't know, whatever. Whatever works out, whatever, you know, open door, closed door. No, because the devil can open and close doors, too. It's a proactive believing that as you've prayed and committed that situation, that God is going to move doing the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reason. We trust him. And I just say, what a huge blessing to be able to pray in either way. As a child of God, that's a huge blessing. In this sense, prayer is not a religious ritual where we just say words. It's an invitation as God's child as his son or his daughter, to receive the benefits of the future age in the present time right now. Sign me up for that. I want to become a member of that. And then John immediately applies this promise to confidence and answered prayer to a particular situation. It's not me focused, it's others focused. For our brothers and sisters, when they drift, When we pray for our brothers and sisters who've committed sins that don't lead to death, we can pray for them to be forgiven, and God's promise is that he'll grant them life. Now, John says there is a sin that leads to death. Some have called that the unpardonable sin. Scholars have long debated uh, about what was no doubt familiar to John's readers. He uses the expression with an implicit understanding that they knew what he was talking about. They knew something that we don't. The scholars have said today, well, maybe it's one of a specific list of sins, which, of course, led to our Catholic brothers and sisters to define them as mortal and venial. Uh, some have suggested it was a sin of apostasy, which was, you know, total denial of Christ and the faith. Some have suggested blasphemy, where they attribute uh, people in Jesus's day attributed the works of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to the devil. And Jesus himself said, for that sin, there's no forgiveness in this life or in the age to come, either one. I'm not offering a final word. Who am I? Other than to say, well, the last of those three seems to be most congruent with what Jesus taught, that the sin that's never forgiven is the sin of blasphemy. But I, I would just say, here's my take. For many, many years, Christians have been tormented by the devil with thoughts and accusations that they've committed the sin that leads to death. Maybe some of you have wrestled with that very thought. The enemy has told you that you've committed the unpardonable sin, that that sin couldn't be forgiven, and and there's only death that follows. But here's my conviction. If you're worried that you've committed it, it's proof that you haven't. Did you get that? If you're worried that you've committed the sin, it's only proof that you haven't, because people that have committed it aren't the least bit worried. They don't care. They've said to H-E double toothpicks with this whole thing. And they've walked away from Jesus and the faith and the church. They're not worried that they've committed the sin. And so if you're struggling, it's proof that you haven't, and we can pray for you that it's no longer a struggle or a battle. 
In fact, that's the promise that John gives us, that we can pray for people who have sinned and erred, and if they haven't committed the sin unto death, they'll be forgiven. John is indicating that one of the benefits of believing and belonging is to compassionately and powerfully pray for our brothers and sisters who struggle in sin, and God will forgive them and act on their behalf. How cool is that? This is always the will of God, and you can pray that prayer with confidence. Now, when we normally conclude a letter, an email, a text message, Our last paragraph is usually somewhat of a summary and a farewell, isn't it? Generally speaking. For instance, the Apostle Paul often concluded his letters with language like we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We wrap up the letters with kind of a final punctuation. But in characteristic John Ayne fashion... John seems to end abruptly, almost as if in mid-thought. Dear friends, literally, keep yourselves from idols. It may feel like a sudden, sharp right-hand turn, because it is. We may feel like, like, John, where, where did that thing come from? It feels like way right, like out of left field. And in some ways, his concluding comment is that, but in another way, John succinctly summarizes the appeal of his entire letter and his overriding desire for his readers is, as we read in the New Living, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Keep yourselves from idols. Now, for all that John means, and all he intends us to embrace, we're going to launch next Sunday with a four-week sermon series on what is worship. And we'll begin with the message, One True God, Freedom from Idolatry. You're going to want to come back next week, aren't you? Lord, we just want to say thank you for both encouraging and challenging us through the book of 1 John, this apparently simple but incredibly challenging book where you call us to love you and love others. And I just thank you, Lord, for all the many ways that, that you've spoken to our lives. You've, you've changed our lives. You've invited our lives. You've, you've called our lives all in for the sake of your kingdom. I pray you'd put power on your word to every one of us who hears, those who are listening on our podcast, that we could be people that respond in the ways that you desire under the inspiration and encouragement of your Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, as we offer our lives to you again in the giving of our offerings, the time when we take these hard-earned dollars that we've worked hard and, and we give you a portion of them to say our life really belongs to you and we trust you to make up for what we give. For those that are able to give and, Lord, those that aren't, that have a longing to give, but the life circumstances are preventing them. We pray that you'd you'd bless their intention as well. And, Receive these gifts, Lord, for what they are. And then as we lift our voices and hands and hearts in song, receive these, Lord, tokens that say we love you in your name. Amen.